Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to this week's Clarity Church gathering here at Edinburgh Elementary. And uh, whether you are ready for it or not, today starts the beginning of what has been celebrated since around the 5th or 6th century, and that is what? The Advent season that is more properly referred to as the Christmas season or Christmas season. So if you would, I want to invite you as we start this new series entitled The Christmas Timeline. We just wanted to theme it so we can kind of know where we're going. If you want to go ahead, I want to invite you to open up whatever copy of the scriptures is most convenient to you. Go ahead and grab that, whether it's a paper Bible like I've got or if it's an app on your phone. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be uh, open up to the book of Luke, by the way. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be journeying through a really popular passage, a passage that, in, at least in my home, we read to the kids. We actually make, before they can open gifts, we have to read this together. And so I don't know if this will end up being something really precious to them when they're older, or if it'll be like, ah, oh, Luke chapter 2. There's oh, a thing that always kept us from opening presents. I don't know. Uh, the jury will still be out. But that's the tradition that Leona had in her home, and it was something that has been meaningful to her. So we hope that it's meaningful for our kids. And so today we'll be looking at Luke chapter 2, and, uh, well, not all of it, but over the next several weeks, But today we're going to be looking at the first seven verses. And so go ahead and turn there to Luke chapter 2, and we'll start from verse 1, and we'll just kind of walk through. Now, before we do that, let me ask you a question. Has anyone here ever played the telephone game, right? Telephone game, or sometimes known as the whisper train, because you're supposed to whisper, right? And if you know how the game goes, if you know how the game goes, uh, maybe maybe you haven't, Maybe you call it by something different. It's a game where you have basically a line of people. The more people, the better, right? And you start at one end with someone whispering a phrase in a person's ear, and they in turn have to do what? Repeat it to the person next to them in line. Now, this game is especially fun uh, for people who have already played it and have a little bit of a rebel in them, right? (laughs) Because you just don't know who or how someone is going to try to sabotage the game. But even if the game was played as accurately as it could be, often what starts as something like, I don't know, make a phrase like, you know, all around the mulberry bush, the monkey chased the weasel, right? And then that might be something that you would start with, all around the mulberry bush, the monkey chased the weasel, Even if you played the game as accurate as you could, it would end up, in turn, sounding something like, falls about to hurry us because somebody's got the measles, right? And and everyone would be like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. So anyway, you you played the telephone game, right? Those of you who played the telephone, you know what I'm talking about. And you you hear that and you'd be like, well, that sort of sounds like it, but it's not really. (laughs) Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you think of the story of the birth of Jesus. I don't know what you've heard, but if you're like me, chances are that you've heard more versions of something sort of like the scriptural account of the birth of Jesus, but maybe not the actual account of the birth of Jesus. And like a diamond, how many, how many, People here have diamond rings or earrings or anyone, something nice. We can even say cubic zirconium, but just, you usually don't take those to the jeweler to get clean. But if you have a nice diamond ring, like a diamond ring that hasn't been cleaned in years, the longer and more familiar we are with seeing a biblical story in a certain way, 
the harder it is to remember it for its original brilliance and its original clarity, the longer it goes. And today I hope to take us to the jewelry store, that is, (laughs) maybe the scripture, and wipe off the years of exposure that maybe have created a lack of clarity around what is the timeline of the Christmas story. Now, granted, what I'm going to tell you isn't anything new. So please don't misunderstand me by saying what I have to tell you here today is something absolutely new. In fact, I was joking about this with the, uh, the, the musicians earlier. I had a New Testament professor that always said, uh, if, you know, his name is Dr. Allen, there's this big, deep voice, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, if you ever hear a preacher get up before you with the scriptures in hand and say, today I'm going to tell you something that has never been heard before, run, do not pass go, for heresy is afoot, <laughs> right? Because the scripture is what it is. And so I'm not trying to tell you anything new, but what I hope to do is maybe introduce a little bit of clarity around what has been made unclear through time by maybe well-meaning people, but eventually a pop culture that's been willing to jump onto the story that is the birth of Jesus. So here's what we'll do. As we usually do when we break down a passage, I'll start with looking at the passage. We'll kind of walk through it. I'll uh, help us understand maybe how the original readers would have understood it, uh, paying attention to some of the contextual stuff that, that might give us a clue to how we are to read this, like the original readers were to read it. And then at the end, I'll do my best to present how what we read, one, tells us about who God is, because ultimately the scripture is not about me, it's not about you, it's about who God is, right? But then in light of who we know who God is and what we learn about how God has done things, I'll encourage us maybe to ask the question, how then shall we live? And maybe give us a little bit of homework that if you're daring, maybe we could try to put into practice what has been demonstrated to us now as a work through us. Does it make sense? So are you here at Luke chapter two? If you are, say yay. Yay. Good. Let's look at verse one. Here we go. The birth of Jesus. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius, Quirinius was governor, was governing Syria. Okay, let's just stop right here real quick. With the desire to help people who were being told that Jesus was not real, even just a few decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, believe it or not, Luke wrote this gospel with the hopes of tying historical events and the good news of Jesus together in ways that would help people personalize, become more familiar, would be able to grasp this idea of who Jesus is and maybe even give the gospel credibility while at the same time painting a clear picture of God's sovereignty. And so here Luke reminds those that may be unfamiliar with the story of how God became flesh and dwelt among us, as we know the gospel of John refers to Jesus as the he who became flesh and dwelt among us. 
Here, Luke reminds us that Jesus was born in the middle of what would have been a very uneasy political climate as a God-fearing Jew. Now, where do you get that from? Well, hold on. Let's take a look at this, maybe through the eyes of someone who would have originally read this. Aside from the fact that most people saw the census as a narcissistic demand of the Roman Empire to feed his self-proclaimed godlike persona, Roman censuses were a way to assess the ability to recruit able-bodied men for the ever-growing Roman military that was needed to keep this <laughs> uh, Pax Romana, which even in its phrase is kind of an oxymoron because Roman peace was kept by military control. But Roman peace was what they were pursuing, this Pax Romana. In order to keep it, they needed more and more men for their military as they continued to conquer more and more land. And because a growing army required a growing need for food and shelter, a census was also a way to tax people to fund those growing armies as well as fund the construction of the Roman roads. Now, if ancient history is not your cup of tea, you should know that the Roman roads at the, at, at the time were, were really anything short of a modern marvel. And some of us, we look at the pictures of Dubai and, you know, you're, anyone seen pictures of Dubai? Like, oh my goodness, that's so amazing. Oh my goodness, look at that, right? And this was like, that times like a hundred. Roman roads at the time were, were anything but short of a, a modern marvel. When all was said and done, the roads that were built were comprised over, listen, 250 miles of road, of which over 50,000 miles were constructed of hand-built stone pavement. Hand-built stone pavement. I don't know about you. Have you ever, anyone ever laid down patio pavers? Okay. Would, can you imagine laying down 50,000 miles of that? I don't. <laughs> no. No, thank you. <laughs> I'd rather help you move <laughs> than help you put in patio pavers. But these taxations were seen as so unfair and overbearing that history records numerous riots breaking out between the Jewish people and Rome, and Rome due to the Jews' resentment regarding the taxation. Now, some of you, what I just told you, you already knew, right? You already knew, okay? We know about that. But maybe you didn't understand that the reason why Luke talked about this census was to help paint a picture of a political climate that was happening at the time of Jesus' birth. Let's move on. Verse 3 says this. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Verse 4. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is also called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Okay. Are you ready for the fun? Okay. Some of you are already catching it because you're able to read this and you're like, oh, I kind of know where we're going with this. First of all, let me just give a warning for those of faint of heart. Uh, for some of you, what I'm about to say may have you questioning everything you have heard about the Christmas story. 
Um, just because it's how you're wired, you maybe don't like change, you don't like to, you know, maybe you have a special, uh, the, the way that the Christmas story has been told to you was passed on maybe from someone you dearly loved, who you really trusted, and they always told it in this way. And so as I tell you, as we look at the scripture and what, what we kind of reveal here, it, for some of you, it might feel like, oh my goodness, I don't know what to believe anymore. And listen, if, if that's you, please, here's what I want to ask you to do. Don't tune me out. Don't tune me out. When you hear the truth about this story, what I want you to know is that it actually has more meaning than if you chose not to embrace the truth as we find it here, simply in this scripture. And so what does the typical depiction of the birth of Jesus look like? Since we're talking about that, before we dive in, what does the typical depiction of the birth of Jesus look like? It's Mary on a what? Donkey, right? Joseph leading the way in the thick of night, right? It's always the thick of night. It's always, it's always with what? Stars up above. There's always a silhouette. And depending on who's telling it, Mary either starts going into labor as soon as they arrive in Bethlehem or maybe for dramatic effect. And as they were, about a mile away, all of a sudden, Mary's water broke. And she was, right? And so depending on who's telling the story, right, there's a sense of urgency as, 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 as they're heading into Bethlehem. And then there's what? There's frantic Joseph doing what? You got a place to stay? Sorry, no room in the inn. Sorry, no room in the, right? This is kind of what, what we think of when we hear of the Christmas story. But the question is, what does the text say? What does the text say? The text makes no mention of any kind of dramatic labor conditions, though the circumstances around labor are, there could be a lot of drama, right? Like, so I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not telling mamas out there, I'm not saying that your labor was nothing, okay? So just <laughs> before you get, get offended by me, I'm not saying, and we know that it is an event. It is an event, for sure. Even if everything goes as planned, it is an event, right? That's why they call it the miracle of birth. But there is no mention of any dramatic labor conditions. There's no mention of Joseph running around. <laughs> Help me, my wife. My wife, she's pregnant. She's going to have a baby. Right? That's the typical depiction that we have. And furthermore, so that's just the text. Um, what do the scholars say? The, the people who have spent their whole life looking at the text and understanding the uh, historical and cultural ramifications of what the text tells us about who God is and what he has done. What do they say? Well, uh, there's a man by the name of Dr. Kenneth Bailey. He's a theologian and biblical scholar who grew up in Egypt as a kid and he spent 40 years, he, he's, he's a white dude, but, so he, but he grew up in Egypt, and he went, back, he went to school in America, and then he went back, and then he spent 40 years teaching theology in the Middle East, at different theological seminaries in the Middle East, and he, for, he, spent, he was spent 40 years there, and he taught New Testament in seminaries and institutes in Egypt, Lebanon, Jerusalem, Cyprus, 
And he wrote a fascinating book, which I absolutely recommend, by the way, if you've never read it. It's called Jesus Through the Middle Eastern Eyes, Cultural Studies in the Gospels. Uh, if you want a link for that later, I can, I can uh, for those of you who are part of our communities, you'll get a copy of my notes and you can just, just take a look at it there. But if you send me an email later, I'll, I'll send it to you. But it's a very great book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, Cultural Studies in the Gospel. But in this book, he talks about where we got this false narrative that has become a part of pop culture's understanding of the nativity story. He also tells us a few things that when you read other scholarly writings regarding this passage of Scripture uh, that they also talk about, which further gives evidence to uh, the fact that the story that many of us grew up with was not how Luke recorded it. And, And disclaimer, as I said before, what we're going to talk about doesn't change the fact that Jesus was born. And this doesn't alter the trustworthiness of the Scripture. In fact, what I hope will be the takeaway for us today comes directly from this more accurate and more Scripture-based perspective. So um, Dr. Bailey actually gives more facts about the birth of Jesus than I have time to, to share about. Uh, from Luke's narratives through the eyes of someone who understands Palestinian geography and Jewish tradition— and, and you should take a look at that, but I want to talk about just a few things as we're looking at this passage that I think might help give some, no pun intended, clarity on this Christmas story. First, Joseph portrayed as looking for a place for himself and Mary at the last minute, right? We all know what that, that story is. While it makes for a good story, is not the story that Luke communicates, Joseph, by scriptural standards, and from what the scripture tells us about who Joseph is, he was a respectable man. Remember, he did not turn Mary away when she found out, when he found out that she was pregnant. Remember that? He was a respectable, he was a carpenter, he made his living. And and we can assume from the text that he was a responsible man who had already shown a great deal of wisdom in bringing Mary with him for the census, instead of leaving her at home in her third trimester by herself, he said, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to be there with her. I'm going to be there with her. She's going to be there with me. And as any responsible person, he would have known how to find accommodations for his family, as Dr. Billy says. Also, being the line of David, remember that little tidbit there in, in, uh, in verse 4? Joseph had to go back to his family's town to register for the census. And, quote, this is what he says, The family of David was so famous in Bethlehem that local folk apparently called the town the city of David. That's why it was called the city of David. And being of that family, right, Joseph would have been welcomed anywhere in that town. Any of you come from a small town? Any small town people here? No, small town people, no. If you, if you come from a small town, okay, you walk in, people know who you are. My wife comes from a very small town, Wakarusa, Indiana, right? You know who the barons are, you know who the, and, and you just know who they are. You know who they are. Even, even if you haven't seen them for years, I, I, we go back to Wakarusa sometimes, I'm like, oh, you're a grown up, so am I. You know, <laughs> we go to church with her sometimes. In fact, um, the word that has been misinterpreted, by the way, for inn, some, some of you remember the story, right? There's no room in the what? Inn, that's what we've heard. It's, by the way, it's a, it's a gross misinterpretation. It's, it's actually, 
not even a word that New Testament writers use when they talk about inns. Uh, the word that they actually use is a, is a pandokion, which is a, I don't even know if I said that right, that's probably terrible, but it's a word that's used, for example, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember? When he picks him up and takes him to a what? Inn. It's a totally different word than what we have classically been told is there was no room at the inn. The more accurate understanding of this word that was used here is actually private residence. There was no room at this private residence. On top of that, according to cultural traditions, Joseph would likely have found a place to stay in plenty of time. If not, here's the other evidence. Remember earlier in the story, uh, Mary goes to visit who? In chapter one. Her what? Cousin. And do you know where they live? In the hillside of Judea. And at that time, she was what? How many months pregnant? About three months pregnant. Like, just look at the text. It tells you. And so here we are. They're already in Judea. Just in, it's in the outskirts. It's, it's within Judea, but on the outskirts. And so if they were not able to find a place, they could have stayed at their cousin's house. Elizabeth. Zachariah. And they could have gone there. But the fact that they didn't go there... As the scholars take a look at this, the fact that they didn't go there alludes to reality that there were more that was planned. There was more that was planned and formal arrangements have been made than you have been led to believe by the traditional Christmas story. Oh, we got to find some place. We have nothing planned. Now, our movies and Christmas pageants frequently portray this as a stressful, running out of time situation, right? Because that's kind of what we like. Nobody, you know... Uh, uh, home alone isn't as stressful if everyone, in fact, you wouldn't have home alone, right? Anyone seen home alone, right? If the trip to the airport was planned and it wasn't stressful, <laughs> but it makes it dramatic. Why? Because it's stressful. Ah, we woke up late. Ah! And so uh, sometimes we opt for something that is more dramatic than that is more real. However, Luke doesn't say this, right? He doesn't say that this is what happens. To quote Dr. Bailey directly, he writes this. He says this. And I'm just going to read this because it's really good. He says, in every culture, this is another little tidbit of information that may help paint the picture that you have been told of the traditional Christmas story in, in, a, in a clearer light. He says this. In every culture, a woman about to give birth is given special attention. Simple rural communities the world over always assist one of their own women in childbirth regardless of the circumstances. Are we to imagine that Bethlehem was an exception? No, your wife is pregnant. Ugh, no room for you. <laughs> that was me, by the way. That didn't want to read. Was there no sense of honor in Bethlehem, he writes? Surely the community would have sensed its responsibility to help Joseph find adequate shelter for Mary and provide the care she needed. To turn away a descendant of David in the city of David would be an unspeakable shame on the entire village. So, big question is, Phil, was there anything right <laughs> that we've been told about this story? Well, yes. In fact, there was one. It was in the last verse. Then she gave birth to her son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger. 
the manger. The mentioning of a feeding trough for livestock points to the fact that even though Joseph was from the royal line of David, the place that Jesus was staying was a place of humble means. Again, as Dr. Bailey notes, scholars uh, who reside in the Middle East have always understood Luke chapter 2 verse 7 as referring to as a one-room traditional village house with mangers cut into the floor at one end. He also mentions, as most commentaries on this passage recognize, that the Greek Greek word does not refer to a room and an inn, but rather to space. So when there's no room in the inn, as you traditionally hear, it's actually there was no space. The word topos, as in there's no space on my desk for my new computer, right? That's different than like there's no room for you to stay here. In other words, it wasn't that there wasn't any room for Joseph and Mary, but that there wasn't a place designated for a guest with a baby. And so there was no space for this baby. And so what they said is that they decided to put the baby where? In a manger. Because there wasn't a designated space for this baby. So, when you look at the birth of Jesus simply from Luke's writings through the lens of someone familiar with Palestinian geography and Jewish culture, it's clear to see that, A, instead of unpreparedness, there was a sense of expectancy. Instead of a lack of welcome, there was an understanding that a member of the line of David would have been gladly welcomed, even if the arrangements were humble. And speaking of humble, what has always been understood was that Jesus was welcomed into this earth. Not as a king of kings, but in humility, as God with us, God one of us. As one person writes, he is approachable, accessible, available. No palace gates bar the way to him. No ring of guards prevent our approach. The king of kings came humbly in his first bed was a manger. So, what do we take from this, right? That's that's the question, right? That's that's the passage. Well, Jesus welcomed, Jesus was welcomed into this world through humility. That's what we see here. And it was in this humility, hope was birthed into the world. Now, the first Sunday of Advent, which is this Sunday, typically focuses on what? If anyone grew up with Advent, it focuses on hope, this word hope, the hope that Jesus' birth story has brought to us. But those who haven't heard the story aren't able to experience that hope, are they? Like, only those who hear the story can experience the story. Right? Can we agree on that? Like, you can't experience the story of hope unless you've heard the story of hope. Can we agree on that? Can we agree on that? Yeah? If you don't agree, (laughs) Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 10. How can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? 
And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. Jesus is a story of hope, but it's only hope to those who have heard it. On top of this reality, if we who have heard the story forget that Luke intentionally mentioned the tense political climate Jesus was welcomed into this world by, we could mistakenly believe that the circumstances of our own political climate could be an environment where the reality of the gospel of Jesus would not, could not, dare not ever be welcomed. The truth is, however, that according to Luke, not only was the welcome of Jesus possible in a crazy political climate, but hindsight tells us it was actually ideal. As another Bible scholar notes, Augustus never heard of Jesus of Nazareth, but within a century or so, his successors in Rome had not only heard of him, they were taking steps to obliterate his followers. And within just over three centuries, the emperor himself became a Christian. Now, I say all this because I believe that one of the things that God may want to, I don't know, help you, help me learn in this season is to increasingly believe that the climate of culture does not hinder the ability of God to be with us. It does not hinder the effectiveness of the gospel of Jesus to us and through us. But in fact, the climate can be where Jesus comes most alive not only in us, but it is the opportunity for God to be amplified through us. I believe this. And I believe that this season could be an opportunity for you and for me to, maybe asking you to believe it outright seems too harsh. And maybe I'll put it this way. Maybe this season for you is an opportunity to increasingly believe that the world around us does not inhibit the power of the gospel, but can in fact be the very environment that welcomes the greatest move of the gospel this world has ever seen. But it starts with a welcome. It starts with a welcome. And this is my suggestion for any that are daring enough to try it. This is it. And I'll phrase it in a question. Can you find the opportunity within the next few weeks to practice welcoming someone into your everyday rhythms so that you can share just how excited you are about the good news of Jesus? Can you invite someone into your rhythms? I'm not asking you to change your plans I'm saying you already got some. Would you welcome someone into those rhythms so that 
You can tell them what you're... Ex- Listen, it's Christmas. You get a pass to say, oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited about Christmas. Jesus came to earth. And even if people thought you were crazy, and even if they didn't believe in Jesus and the Bible, this is the one time that you get a pass to be the crazy Christian that you are. And maybe, just maybe, the word of God will not return void as you speak the gospel into the lives of those, of the people around you, you are welcoming to hear the gospel. Maybe that seems too ambiguous. Maybe you need levels. So maybe let's, uh, let's give you a level, right? So maybe level one, like level one, level one task is this. Invite a friend, someone you know, someone you like, someone that you can carry already a conversation with. It doesn't have to be someone stranger. It doesn't have to, someone you already know, someone you like. I mean, if you need like, Half level. You can't even get to invite a family member, okay? Now, granted, some of you might have family members that you don't like and you don't like talking to. So then if that's the case, well, then push them to level three. We'll talk about that later. (laughs) But level one, start with a friend. Grab some coffee. And then make it a point to be intentional, to talk about the reality of Jesus. Because this season is about who? Jesus. Who is the what? reason for the season. Level two. Level two. Some of you are like, oh, I got that. I already do that. Literally, here's level two. Maybe, maybe welcome someone into part of your everyday rhythms that you haven't hang out, hung out with in a while. Maybe it's someone you are, are friends with, but due to COVID, like you feel friendly towards them and you know that they friend, feel friendly towards them. But if you're honest with yourself, you have not hung out with them for a while. And they might even already be a Christian, But you don't get any better at being a proclaimer of the gospel if you don't proclaim the gospel. It's it's actually just very, very simple. And so maybe it's not even about letting someone hear the gospel from you, but it's about you practicing, speaking the realities of who Jesus is and how excited you are. And so maybe find someone that you haven't gotten together with in a while. Do you know that person? Are you thinking about them? Level three, level three, for those who like the challenge. Maybe, maybe if you want a challenge, this is welcoming someone into part of your everyday lives that you know carries some baggage with them. Maybe it's someone that's lonely, right? And not out of pity, get together with them like, oh, this poor lonely person, they need me. But because the very nature of God is one that reaches out to those who are alone, us who have been separated from him, even while we were still sinners, separated from God and the fellowship of his family, he invites us and welcomes us to be not only his child, but to be part of this family of God. And so reaching out to those to whom you know have no one. Of course, you can go to level five, skip level four, I don't know what that is, you can fill it in, but you know, who's that stranger? Who's that person at work that you really don't talk to, you don't know, but, and, and how can you invite them into the rhythms of what is this season and use it to proclaim the good news of God? And I get it. 
As Midwesterners, sometimes it's hard to share your space with people, <laughs> right? Right? Like those who are from the Midwest, it's really hard to share your space with people, especially if there's like six-foot rules and stuff like that. I get it, right? But listen, Jesus was welcomed into a one-room village home. It wasn't anything impressive. According to the historians, it was very simple. And even though his feeding, even though his bed was a feeding trough, I can guarantee that before he was placed into it, it was cleaned out. Like, I, I just, I don't know, I, mean, I don't know, maybe you like to paint the picture differently, but I, I, would, I would assume that as the baby was being born, whoever owned the house was like, well, we got to put this baby somewhere, let's put it in the feeding trough, and... They probably cleaned it out. They probably just didn't lay Jesus in swatting claws right on top of the food. I mean, can we take a guess? Is that, is that fair to say? I'm pretty sure that the place was prepared for him. And so welcoming people into your rhythms doesn't require you to be fancy. You don't have to clean your house, make it spotless, though it might help to help people feel welcome. I'm just saying, though, but you know, you'd probably pick up a little bit, but it doesn't require that. It just requires the best of what you have. It just requires what you have. Phil, what if I don't have living situations or circumstances where I'm able to invite somebody over? I just, I don't, I, you know, my, you don't know my circumstances, that just doesn't work. And Okay, okay, I get it. Listen. Other welcoming environments might be sharing a work lunch with a coworker. Maybe it's assembling and delivering a small welcome basket for a new family in town. Maybe it's finding someone who you can drag with you to our every meal that we do. When's the next one? Not this Friday, but next Friday, right? Is it this Friday? This Friday? This Friday. You know, we, we, we deliver meals to kids for the weekend uh, every other Friday, I believe, and you can drag them on, have them come, you know, and, and, and get in touch with Emma and, and see if we can't get them registered and all that kind of stuff. Maybe it's doing something, like serving with some people. Maybe, uh, maybe it's writing a note. Like, who writes, <laughs> who writes notes anymore? It's reaching out to someone that you know is probably going unseen. And for people who are lonely, this is one of the loneliest seasons. And maybe telling that person what you appreciate about them. This is important stuff. This is important stuff. This is how, if you want to look like Jesus in the world, this is some practical stuff. Because I guarantee you this, we can get caught up in our shopping and our holiday list checking and you can get everything prepared and walk away from the season and have not looked like Jesus one ounce. I don't want that for us. I don't want that for you. And if I know you, you don't want that for you. The point is this. If we want hope and joy to come to the world, 
If we want the gospel of Jesus to invade and saturate the everyday rhythms of our lives and touch the lives of everyone we meet, phrases that we often talk about, right? You know, we want the gospel to touch our lives and to touch those around us. Like, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's good news, right? Like, you can agree with that. You can, like, you can say amen to that. Like, we want the gospel to affect and invade and saturate our lives and the lives of everyone around us. Like, that's, that's an amen thing, right? That's what we all want. If that's you then we need to be the kind of people who celebrate Christmas not only by singing joy to the world the Lord has come, but being the kind of people who live the kind of lives that invite, as the next verse would say later on, to invite every heart to prepare Him room. And so as we start this season, would you welcome Jesus into your rhythms, but not stop there? Would you choose, and this is the point, would you choose to welcome others? And would you choose to use your voice to share the good news of God with us?